This is Hit Bull Win Podcast, the official podcast of the Durham Bulls, part of the Capital Broadcasting Podcast Network. I'm Scott Strickland, Assistant GM of the Durham Bulls. All right, Bulls fans, welcome back to this episode of Hit Bull Win Podcast. We are extremely fortunate today to be joined by uh, a great Major League Baseball personality and and, uh, and in the journalism field that that just about every uh, baseball fan probably knows, uh, Buster, Buster Olney, thank you for uh, for joining us today. Yeah, sure, Scott. Uh, although I would say your word of the you, your use of the word personality, <laughs> I can tell you that my three siblings would have so much fun with that. They're like, really? No, he's the he's the only one in the whole family who actually likes baseball. Uh, the rest of us are back on the farms in Vermont. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it uh, that that's funny. It's funny how. Uh, how family members uh, reflect us, and and uh, maybe our person, our our public image is a little different than what we, what we are back at home. So, uh, thanks again for for joining us. I think this will be a a great insight um, into multiple things. One, your, your background uh, and how you got into the game that that we all love so dearly, um, and then kind of shuffling into to the, the current status in, in baseball and there, gosh, I mean, every level, uh, <laughs> is, is in turmoil is probably the right word, whether that be the, the college level, high school, high school level, college level, uh, minor league level and, and, and big league level. Um, and then we'll kind of shift into kind of what most folks probably are, are interested as well in on this podcast, which is the Tampa Bay Rays and our affiliation with them. So, uh, let's, let's jump into it first. Uh, you know, we ask everyone. We we obviously hope you're doing well, and and your family's doing well through the through the COVID crisis. But uh, how are you, and and how has this impacted kind of your your daily personal and professional life? Yeah, I'm doing well. You know, it's interesting. Earlier this week, I, I became uh, you know my childhood hero growing up because I knew by the time I was 15 and I was five seven and three quarters that I was not going to be power forward for the Lakers like I aspired to at age 12. Uh, or uh, be second baseman for Los Angeles Dodgers. And so my hero became Peter Gammons. Uh, and it just so, you know, we became friends later on in life. Uh, and I was talking to him the other day, and I asked him that question. You just asked me, how you doing? And he told me about how he and his wife, Gloria, were sitting down and they're having a meal. And Gloria said, well, the food's not great. The dinner's not great. And, and Peter looked at her and said, we're eating. We have a roof over our heads. We're fine. And that's the way that I feel. I live just north of New York City. Uh, know so so many people have been affected uh, by COVID nineteen. Have heard so many terrible stories. An editor that I used to work uh, used to work with at the New York Times, you know, he passed away because of it. And so I feel, you know, at home with my two kids, my wife, uh, in an isolated part of Westchester County, we're good. We're fine. We're eating. We have a roof over our heads, and we're safe. So we're doing okay. And yeah, it, it, it's certainly not what what uh, what you know what I envision as a baseball writer our experience this year, but that's the the same thing can be said by everybody in every walk of life in this country uh, this year. Absolutely, I, I know um, our reality on these type moments. You know, any of these type moments, you always kind of remember where you were and, and what you're doing. Um, it, at least in the sports world, I think everyone would agree. Thursday, March twelfth was the the day the the world the world stopped spinning. Um, we actually were facilitating a, a Duke baseball practice, uh, and that's when all the the conference basketball tournaments 
uh, stopped operating and, and, and postponed and, and and I will never, I will never forget what I was doing during that time. What, what, what were uh, you doing, kind of into that week when, when it became reality that that everything was shutting down? Yeah, that Monday, Tuesday, I had actually been working on a Pete Alonso feature, and I'd been in Mets camp uh, for E60, and I got on a plane to fly home on Wednesday. Uh, and I remember, if you remember that Monday, Tuesday, the big controversy, which seems so silly now. Uh, in baseball was, wait, reporters aren't going to be allowed in the clubhouses? <laughs> like, that was the big social distancing that was potentially going to change the, everything for baseball. And you're right, within 72 hours, we get word of the positive test, Rudy Gobert, that's when the dominoes really started falling. Uh, and once you heard that, I, I remember talking with a, a general manager of a major league team. He goes, that's it. You know, we're, we're going to be shut down. Uh, and then it just became a question of uh, of watching the developments with the coronavirus and what was going to happen next. But that that's you're you're 100 percent right. When you heard that the jazz game got shut down because of a positive test, it felt like, well, here we go. Right. Yeah. It uh, a new norm began that began that day. And we've obviously learned so much in 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 two and a half months. I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I'm fearful or excited for the next two and a half months to see what comes down the pipeline. But, um, all right, well, let's, let's, let's jump into your, your background. Uh, you've already touched on a little bit. So you're, you're a big Dodgers fan, huh? That, that was your first, uh, your first love, your first passion in the, in the baseball side. Yeah. I grew up on a, on a dairy farm in central Vermont, uh, Randolph center, Vermont. And when I was eight years old, my mom bought me a book, uh, about Sandy Koufax and, and coincidentally, my first little, little league team was the Dodgers. So I became a huge Dodgers fan, uh, which was a challenge because we didn't have a television until I was 15 or 16 years old. And the Dodgers are out in Los Angeles. <laughs> so every time that a National League team or the Dodgers would come east or a, a team in the east uh, in the Eastern Division would go out to Los Angeles, you know, I'd listen to WCAU out of Philadelphia or KDKA out of uh, Pittsburgh or radio out of Cincinnati, or Camo X if the radio waves would bounce far enough from St. Louis. Uh, and, and so it followed them, and then we would get the newspaper, the Sunday papers, uh, and I was baseball crazy from that point. Uh, my mom got me a pack, a couple packs of baseball cards when I was uh, in 1973, and I think my parents really regretted it <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, my mom was thinking that I could maybe become a lawyer. And instead, you know, my whole uh, my floor and my bedroom were just covered with baseball cards. I would get thousands and thousands and thousands of those uh, from Floyd General store. Uh, and, you know, when I they they knew that I wasn't smart enough to fix tractors, <laughs> I think by the time I was 14, 15. So I, I went away to school. Uh, and I was lucky enough that uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, Red Smith, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Times, he came and spoke at my at the boarding school where I was. And and I was just figuring out then, you know what? I love writing. I love sports. And after listening to him and this is a year before he passed away, he was in his mid 70s. I was like, that is a cool job. And so from 15 on, I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to become a baseball writer. That's awesome. That uh, I think uh, those folks, and, and I'm included in that group, who, who are fortunate enough to to find out and discover at an early age, kind of okay, th this is I might not know exactly what I want to do in that profession, but that's the profession I want to be in. Um, and, and baseball is 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 so easy to fall in love with it at that regard. Um, 
So, all right, you, you, you go off to boarding school and, and, and uh, you live the, the farm life before that. How do, you, how do you end up at Vandy? Boy, uh, they, at that time, when I was a, a, a high school uh, senior, the, my college admissions counselor uh, was someone who had actually come from Vanderbilt. And so he mentioned, he said, I think Vanderbilt has a sports writer scholarship. So I applied to Vanderbilt for the sports writer scholarship. I want to make clear, I did not get that. The Grantland Rice scholarship was a full ride to Vanderbilt. Wow. Uh, and if you win it, that's great. You get all the way through. I didn't. <laughs> but I think because I was in the group of finalists, uh, I got through admissions. I don't think I would have gotten through admissions <laughs> and been accepted right, there yeah. <laughs> unless I had been in that group. Uh, I wound up finishing third and you get zero dollars for third place. But I think it did help me get get me into Vanderbilt. And I, I went there sight unseen, you know, got on a plane with my stuff, with my clothes, had never been wow. basically, uh, you know, out of New England my whole life and, and just dropped in for my first day landing in Nashville. And I tell you, it was an eye opener right yeah. from the beginning. Okay. I, and as I, I really began to feel like doing something that you're not accustomed to doing something different w was good for me. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, Vanderbilt's a beautiful, Nashville is just an amazing place. Uh, Vandy with obviously so much uh, baseball success uh, under coach Corbett. What, what was Vandy baseball like uh, back when, when you were there? It was okay. Roy Muburn was the coach there. Uh, and it was interesting. The the short starting shortstop when I was a freshman and, and the shortstop was a freshman as well was Joey Cora, hmm. uh, who, of course, wound up being drafted in the first round later uh, in, in his life. And he played a lot of years in the big leagues and his brother, Alex. I kind of know them all so well. I got to work in the end with Alex at, uh, at ESPN. But at that time, uh, you know, Vanderbilt baseball was, it was an okay program. They had guys like Scott Sanderson come through there and play in the big leagues, but it certainly didn't reach the the level that it's at now where it's the, it's, I don't, I don't think there's any question. I don't, I, I am biased as an alum, but I think I could step back objectively say, yeah, that is the number one baseball program in the country. It's become like the Duke basketball, um, you know, for, for baseball. And at that time, I think people remember Vanderbilt baseball best because it was they had such a short left field porch just beyond left field. There was a swimming pool. And, and I want to say it was like 290 feet. And years later, after I went to Vanderbilt, uh, I was talking with Derek Jeter, who I covered when I covered the Yankees for The New York Times. And he mentioned his dad had gone to college. Charles had gone to college in Nashville. He goes, yeah. And I think his only home run that he ever hit in college was actually at Vanderbilt. And I said, well, you can tell him I know why. Because <laughs> it was 290 feet down the left field line. <laughs> take take advantage of, of what life gives you, right? Whether it be a short porch or anything else. <laughs> exactly. So cool. All right. After after Vandy, what's your uh what's your, what's your first job uh writing? Well, I was like my parents had no money and it was a struggle for me to get through college. And uh, I was 21 hours short from graduating from Vanderbilt. Uh, and, and so I, I went to the Nashville banner where I'd been working as an intern. I said, look, I, I, I don't have money to finish college. I, I want to get a job here. Well, the publisher of the banner, uh, his name is Irby Simpkins called me in his office. He said, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, if you come and work for me for at least a year, then I will pay off the rest of your college. 
And so that's the deal that I had. Yeah. I got the last 21 hours and I worked at the Nashville Banner, which is you know, folded about uh, 20 years ago, worked for them for a couple of years. And then uh, I went to the San Diego Union. I covered high school sports for uh, three years, covered some college sports, always with my eye, though, that I wanted to cover Major League Baseball. Uh, and I was able to start doing that in 1992, 93, 94, covered Tony Gwynn. Uh, Andy Bennis covered the fire sale when they traded away a lot of their best players. And then in 1995, uh, went to the Baltimore Sun. That was the year that Cal Ripken broke the record, covered the Orioles for two years in 95, 96, and then uh, went to the New York Times in the spring of 97, covered the Mets for a year, covered the Yankees for four years. They were in the World Series every year that I covered them. Uh, once my daughter was born in 1999, I knew that I wouldn't be able to continue being a beat writer okay. uh, and I covered the New York Giants for one year. Uh, and that was about the time ESPN called me. Awesome. Be be best and worst elements of being a beat writer. Oh, the best elements I love is the daily soap opera. Like it's amazing. <laughs> and again, I come from a family where they really don't like sports and they don't like baseball. And so there is that reaction for some people like, God, baseball's the same every day. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not the same every day. It changes the context. You know this, Scott. The context changes constantly. Uh, you know, the cold, the trade, the injury, all these different things. And then on top of that, for me as a writer, you know, having a clubhouse full of uh, of 25 guys from different backgrounds, mm -hmm. and then you add in the pressure, and then you add in the money, and all, you know, how are all these different people going to react to it? I love that. And, and writing about the personalities. I was covering the Yankees, for example, when Orlando Hernandez, El Duque, you know, came over on a boat from Cuba. And to see sort of that wide-eyed part of El Duque uh, and see the way that he could adapt in such a short time to the big leagues, that was cool. And then you think of someone like Derek Jeter, who had such a great upbringing, uh, such great support from his parents and how that really worked well for him. And then on the flip side, you know, Daryl Strawberry, when I covered him, he was battling addictions. Mm -hmm. um, someone who didn't come from a great, uh, you know, he came from a, a, a home that was, uh, you know, troubled as he was growing up mm -hmm. and how he dealt with that. And it's so neat to see now that he's come through all that. I, I love being able to write about the, the human side of it. In addition to the great baseball that I got to see. Now the downside, there's no doubt the travel. Yeah. Like being it, when I was a Yankee beat writer, I was on the road for 150 nights a year. And that's, as I say, when my daughter was born in 1999, I knew that I not, could not continue as a beat writer. It just took you away from home for too many days. Yeah. The, um, let's, let's go back a hair. So I'm, I'm curious your opinions on, so in what, 1989, you're in Nashville, right? You're, you're covering the sounds? Yep. That's exactly right. All right. So let's, let's, let's compare that time to, to the image that's portrayed in, in Bull Durham. Um, what, what, what were your, what were your thoughts back then? Was it, was it similar? What, what was it? Was that the minor <laughs> league life? Um, and, and, and where was it different? A hundred percent. I love Bull Durham because I felt like it absolutely captured, uh, the, you know, the, the anxiety to some degree and the joy, uh, uh, you know, of someone like Crash Davis, he loved to play baseball, and you could see that. And that was at the heart of the guys I got to cover, Skeeter Barnes, 
Uh, you know, Keith Lockhart, who wound up playing a lot of years in the big leagues. Joe Oliver, who wound up uh, playing in the big leagues for the Reds, is now a coach with the Boston Red Sox. But also the desperation. I would say this, too. You remember that small clubhouse mm-hmm. that they had in the in the movie? Well, that was like a palace compared to the clubhouse in Nashville. <laughs> At that time, you know, the owner of the Nashville Sounds, Larry Schmidow, uh, he and I didn't see eye to eye very much. Uh, that was not a prime facility at that time. The, the Sounds have upgraded tremendously yeah. currently, but old Greer, Greer Stadium, that was not a great place. I think the and you'll appreciate this. Uh when I was covering that team, sometimes the, the attendance would be announced at like 21 or 22,000. So <laughs> one summer I made up my mind, I'm going to count how many seats are actually in this ballpark. And it took me about a month. <laughs> I went from section to section and counted every seat in the ballpark. And so I wrote a story in the Nashville banner that in order to fit 21 or 22,000 people in there, that the people in the bleachers had to have eight inch butts. Okay. <laughs> that was not a story that Larry appreciated when I wrote it. <laughs> I, I imagine I, why. <laughs> yeah. And, but I, I, you know, Pete McCannon was the manager's second year, Frank Lucchese, the first year, uh, you know, I bump into Pete uh, every spring training and we love having those guys bump into Skeeter uh, love having conversations. I love my two years of covering that team. Skeeter Barnes. What a guy. So he, uh, he comes through a ton yeah, uh, in his roving um, capacity with the Rays and and um, his jokes, his stories are fantastic. And uh, his favorite his favorite one of, of mine is uh, whenever we introduce someone new to him, and we always will try to find the newest person, right, and take them to Skeeter to see how the person reacts to Skeeter's question. They'll, Skeeter will say, "Oh, nice to meet you. Are you local or are you from around here?" And you just <laughs> you just see the wheels spinning, and it's just that's part of the beauty of uh, the baseball life. So, um, well, awesome. one thing I was going to tell you is that when we're talking about Skeeter, uh, like growing up on the farm in Vermont, I was the most boring kid ever, and from the most boring family ever. We never went anywhere, and so I threw wiffle balls against the the side of our barn for hours and hours and hours, and I could make a wiffle ball do anything. <laughs> So when I'm covering the Nashville Sounds, you can ask Skeeter this. Skeeter's going to give you a look when you ask him this story. I talked a lot of smack about being a (laughs) wiffle ball pitcher to the point that I think Skeeter and I wound up on the field in Greer playing wiffle ball, and he had seven at-bats against me. I struck him out six times. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah, and it got to the point that Frank Lucchese, the manager, was standing in the Sounds dugout going, hey, Skeeter, you're letting a sports rider strike you out? And Skeeter ran back, and he got his bat. <laughs> so, yeah, Skeeter. And every time I see Skeeter, of course, he shakes his head when I remind him remind of that him. story. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hit Bull Win Podcast. We'll be back after this. What's been your favorite story that you've, you've covered uh, throughout your career? It was a, a great story that happened in, in 1994. You re- might remember this, but the Cleveland Indians were playing in Comiskey and against the White Sox. And in the first inning, Albert Bell, who was one of the best hitters in baseball at that time, came to the plate. And the White Sox asked that his bat be confiscated because they thought there was cork in the bat. Mm-hmm. And so the umpires confiscate the bat. They put it behind a locked door, the umpire's room. And they go back in after the game, and the bat had been switched out and behind a locked door. 
<laughs> and it was a huge controversy. The FBI was brought in. They were they were taking fingerprints. And the bat eventually from Albert was returned. It did have cork in it and it was he was suspended. But it was an enduring mystery. Like, how did that happen? So when I was covering the Orioles in 96, uh, I bumped into someone with the Indians and I said, hey, how did the bat get out of the umpire's room? And he said, well, one of our pitchers and I obviously told me off the record. Yeah. He said one of our pitchers, Jason Grimsley, uh, he went in through the ceiling tile and pulled the bat out. And, and but he was told to me off the record. Well, three springs later, I look at the, the list of non-roster invitees for the, the Yankees. Jason Grimsley's name is on there. And I made up my mind. I'm like, I'm going to write that story. <laughs> so I got to know Jason the first week, the first couple of weeks of spring training. And I looked at him uh, and I said, hey, Jason, if you happen to be that guy <laughs> who got the bat out of the umpire's room uh, it, it, back in 94 and we get some off the record assurances, you won't be suspended. Uh, would you be willing to talk about it? And he looked at me with the biggest Texas grin you can imagine <laughs> and said, if I happen to be that guy, that would be great. <laughs> and he gave me a couple conditions on it. He had to make the team first. But sure enough, front page of the New York Times in April of 1999, we, un we unveiled the mystery of how Albert Bell's bat got taken out of the locked umpire's room. And uh, Jason was great, but I loved working on that story. It was, it was fun. And, and I I'm going to you know out him now. To Bud Selig's enduring credit, one of one of my colleagues called Bud and said, "Hey, we found out who did this. Uh, if he talks about it, will he? Will this person face any discipline?" Mm -hmm. And Bud's response was, "That's a baseball story that needs to be told." <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That that is that is a classic baseball story. I, I would have I would imagine a clubhouse manager was a part of their uh, that story in some capacity. But uh, going through the ceiling <laughs> tile, absolutely well done. And you got them behind you. I can see it now. You got ceiling <laughs> tiles right there. <laughs> we we have gone through those tiles many times. Uh, our clubhouse manager actually locked himself out of his own office um, last year, and uh, through the ceiling tiles we went. So uh, that's that's a great story. Um, all right. Well, let, let's let's kind of shift uh, to current uh, and in in all the things that are currently going on in in MLB. And obviously, we could we could spend hours talking about this, um, but. Um, for folks who might not be able to keep up with the numerous uh, scenarios that have that have either leaked out or, or been reported upon, um, that that MLB is looking at with the current date as we record this, it's the twenty second of May. Um, please describe kind of what the the current MLB plan is to open up, um, and then we can kind of dive into to positives and negatives and challenges to to that plan. So Major League Baseball's plan is to have a second spring training starting sometime in early June. Uh, you know, sometime around, as one manager said to me, the over-under he said on is around June 12th. And then you have like a three, three-and-a-half-week spring training, and then sometime around 4th of July weekend, uh, America's celebrating its its birthday, and baseball would love to be there probably with some kind of a, you know, an op season opener, maybe a home run derby, something to kick off. Uh, and – from that point forward to play an 82 game season with a playoff format that it involves 14 teams rather than the 10 that we have. Uh, and to this point, uh, the players have not responded. As you and I talk, there's an expectation that a proposal, a revised proposal is going to go from major league baseball to the players. 
Okay. Um, in your opinion, what are the biggest challenges to 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 opening these places back up, and and uh, you know potentially quarantining players into hotels and and whether they can see their families or not and sitting in stands? What what are kind of the largest hurdles that we've got to overcome to to get baseball back on our TVs? Well, first and foremost, it's the outside forces that it can't control. Uh, you and I were talking beforehand about, you know, the dictates coming down from mayors and from governors and potentially from, you know, the federal level. Uh, I've described baseball is kind of like a rowboat in a hurricane <laughs> where, you know, they might be able to address the leak that they see in one part of the, the rowboat, but there are forces way out of their control. And so you could have a situation, you know, up here in New York where I live, you know, the Yankees and the Mets could start, but if hotspot develops, it might be that the mayor or the governor shuts down the city and then the, those two teams would have to move. Or maybe, you know, California, which uh, their governor has uh, talked about, you know, the possibility of professional baseball, professional sports sometime in June. Well, if they have a flare up, you know, would that situation change? So that's going to be a constantly changing context for baseball. Uh, you saw the 67-page uh, safety protocol that baseball forwarded to the players. I think it was a document essentially prepared by doctors and lawyers, uh, but the players are pushing back on some of it. Uh, and so they could work out all these details. They could work out an agreement. But as we saw with the Utah Jazz back in March, if you suddenly have this major flare-up of positive tests, then a lot of it could be derailed. So the word I, I've been using is fragile. Like whatever they come up with, it's so fragile. And that's even before we start talking about the money. Uh, and my greatest disappointment in the leadership on both sides of this thing, I've been shocked at how public they've been yeah. in the discussion about money. Because I feel like at a time when over 30 million people have lost their jobs, uh, so many families have lost uh, loved ones uh, to the virus, I cannot believe that the two sides have let this argument over money become uh, out in the, the court of public opinion in the way they have. I think it's an incredible mistake, but here we are. Yep. And everybody knows that the two sides right now are haggling over how, how they're going to split revenue. Yep. Yeah, and that, that's, uh, that's an onion that's got so many layers to it that uh, you're right. You, you wish those layers would be, would be pulled back and addressed uh, behind closed doors so we don't have to, to go through that. But um, yeah, hopefully we, we don't have another 94 uh, going into 95 on our hands, but, um, but hopefully we yeah, in can, some way I was going to just jump in and say, yeah. in some ways, the fact that it's been out there, uh, that everybody knows now that they've been haggling over money and almost puts more pressure on both sides to get a deal done, done. Yeah. because the idea that baseball wouldn't come back potentially because of an argument over money, the, the re the public reaction, if there's not baseball, uh, and the perception that it's money is the reason why that didn't happen. I mean, God help both sides in right. all seriousness, like in, in the public reaction to that would be uh, it would make the reaction that we saw in 94, 95 look like nothing. <laughs> uh, I think the anger toward baseball would be so big. And that's why I think the two sides, they have to find a way through this. Right. Yeah. Hopefully that'll be a, a, a motivating factor. Um, sticking sticking with the public perception of, of some things in MLB right now and and how that relates to our world here in Durham and throughout minor league baseball. Um, obviously, the, the negotiations between Major League Baseball and minor league baseball are ongo ongoing um, for our contract that expires at the end of, end of this year. 
um, and, and been well reported on, on all of the elements uh, to that potential change, whether that be, uh, you know, Major League Baseball kind of taking over minor league baseball on the operations side and the business side. Um, and, and I think uh, all the way up to the worst part is the contraction of, of numerous teams and, and numerous uh, towns. I know you've got some, some thoughts on that, so I'll just I'll set you free on, uh, on, on your thoughts on, on how this could potentially wind up and then, and then what the impact will be. Yeah, when this started, as you know, I think minor league baseball was hopeful that it could push back against possible contraction uh, through the use of, of folks in Washington. Uh, getting folks like Bernie Sanders, who initially was outspoken on behalf of minor league baseball. But let's face it, the, the virus and the onset of the virus and all the, you know, the attention focused on relief efforts around the virus has completely changed the equation, yeah. I, I feel like, where uh, because there are larger issues at play that you're just if you're Bernie Sanders or you're any other politician, that's not going to be on the front burner in the way that it might have otherwise been. Uh, and that's why I do expect when this is over that minor league baseball is going to be reshaped. I think they really lost their their negotiating leverage because of the events that have happened uh, big picture. Uh, and I and I would expect a change. You know, for me, I, I was surprised uh, that Major League Baseball went down that path because I feel like it's a penny wise and pound foolish mm. perspective. Uh, yeah, I, I get it that. The teams could be more efficient in their use of revenue. Uh, you know, some of the teams, uh, some of the affiliates, they certainly don't have, uh, you know, fields as good as others. They don't have clubhouses as good as others. But I feel like at a time when baseball is trying to expand its fan base, that contracting the number of minor league teams is a bad idea. And I've asked so many teams, how much money could each of you know each team save with the, the reduction of one affiliate and the estimates I get back? And you, I'm speaking to you. It's your business. You know better than I do. Uh, I, the estimates I got back were anywhere from seven hundred fifty thousand to one point five million dollars. And to put that into perspective, in the Major League Baseball world, that's essentially what you could save all those minor league affiliates with. What Garrett Cole is going to get paid for this year that's for right. a full season, right. and the idea that you would potentially alienate or uh, not reach a, a whole bunch of fans over that type of money. Again, penny-wise, pound-foolish to me, but that's the path we seem to be going down. Yeah. It, it, I, I read numerous months ago, I thought, uh, which was basically what you just said, uh, was effectively it's one non-decent reliever for one year. You, you, yep. that, that, that's it uh, in the grand scheme of things. And, and um you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier with with uh, your time in Nashville and Bull Durham, kind of the to me part of the appeal of why Bull Durham is so great is is uh, and, and the track that a player takes through his minor league development to reach the big leagues. That that's a part of America's fabric. Of of you don't just walk straight out of high school and and go into this beautiful facility that has all the bells bells and whistles in the world. You got to earn it. You got to work your way through the system. And and I think part of this would would remove part parts of that of our fabric. Yeah, that you're right. It's a gauntlet that uh, so many players in the past have run and they talk about what a important, you know, part of their experience and learning experience. I mean, you know, Nuke Lelouch. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything that, that rang true, so true to me as someone who's covering baseball, where you have someone with a lot of talent, but they're trying to find their way. And then you have someone with less talent, you know, like a Crash Davis, 
uh, hoping for, you know, he's not the bonus baby. He's trying to just get, uh, you know, two weeks, two glorious weeks in the big leagues. <laughs> um, and I think that it absolutely is part of the journey. And, and part of me, you know, as we're seeing the reduction in the number of rounds of the draft and the reduction of minor league teams, what makes me sad is the fact that there are going to be a lot of major league players that we never hear never about yeah. because of these decisions. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, with five rounds in the draft, there are a lot of, they're going to be players who, you know, maybe like Matt Carpenter, or Matt Adams, or uh, Kevin Kiermeyer, you know, guys who are drafted in the late rounds who are be, maybe because of family situations related to coronavirus, they're going to say, you know what? No, I, there's, there's not a sure thing being in the big leagues in baseball. Yep. So I'm going to go and get a job. Um, you know, my colleague, Paul Mbikides last week sent me a note that I think the number is just slightly below 50% of the players who are in the big leagues hmm. were drafted after the fifth round. That's a lot. And, <laughs> you know, it's an extraordinary number. And I just, you think about all those players that we're never going to see because they weren't able to follow follow the dream. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. Kind of keeping with with KK in the uh, in the Tampa Bay Rays there. Um, obviously, the Rays um, have been have been so successful since since two thousand eight, really, right? With a a, a couple uh, downer years um, mixed in there, but have been incredibly competitive in the AL East. Uh, a tremendous year last year, and we're kind of built for uh, a lot of success in twenty twenty. Um, your, your thoughts on, on the Rays and then also uh, maybe intertwine in there, you know, you know, kind of the appeal that the baseball ops uh, side of the Rays has had apparently throughout baseball with a lot of uh, their talent on the on the GM side of the world uh, going to other teams. So kind of your thoughts on, on where the Rays are right now and, and how they can weather this storm. Yeah, the Rays are like the Duke basketball program or the Vanderbilt baseball program where they're churning out all these prospects for other organizations. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's dozens and dozens and dozens of people have been plucked out of their organization by other organizations uh, because of what they learn and because of how they're groomed. They're like the minor league system for so many other teams, yeah. um, You know, which speaks a lot to, to what Andrew Friedman uh, Stuart Sternberg built there and has been followed. Eric Neander is one of the most respected people in baseball. I remember a couple of years ago, another organization won uh, or, you know, organization of the year. And that that team's uh, general manager won general manager of the year. And I had executives of the team say, no, there's no question who the best run team is right now. It's the Tampa Bay Rays uh, w- with how effective they are and how they max out. I never forget, you know, after they were eliminated from the playoffs last year, I was in Houston uh, after the Astros survived a game five against the Rays. And I was talking with George Springer and Jose Altuve. And they were like, man, that is a good team. That is a great team. And they were talking about what a great job Kevin Cash did, you know, handling his bullpen, all these incredible relief weapons that they had developed. Uh, Just being around the Rays this spring. Uh, just looking at that, uh, you know, the clubhouse full of players say that guy's a good player and that guy's a good player and that guy's a good player for a team run on a shoestring budget. Uh, who was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember which which relief pitcher they acquired, for example, from the Atlanta Braves for one dollar. <laughs> right, right. You know, they have done more with less than any other organization. And, and uh, you know, I do feel like that if, in fact, they get an opportunity 
to play some kind of a 2020 season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about the usual suspects, the Yankees and the Dodgers. But for me, maybe the most dangerous team in the in a context of a shorter season going to be the Tampa Bay Rays because of how much depth they have. Right. It uh, going through those proposals, kind of the first thing that caught my eye was the uh, the competition that would be in their uh, division, so to speak. Uh, like, oh my gosh, that's that's going to be tough. But then obviously the added uh, playoff teams. Uh, that uh, that that would help and and their stable of arms um i i, I man you got to really like that in a in a one game wild card type format or even in a short series as well um just so many young fresh arms that uh, we've been really fortunate to see a lot of those guys come through durham i remember our stat from 2008 was 90% of that playoff roster came through durham uh that season wow. And uh, and then my own my, my kind of personal stat was all right. And ninety five percent of those guys are all just great great guys. And so it's been it's been so rewarding to to see those guys come through Durham and Montgomery before and, and, and move on to the big league level and succeed. Um, we're cheering we're cheering for Cashy. You know he uh, I didn't know this until a couple weeks ago, but he played in the Little League World Series, played in the College World Series. And played in the World Series, so hopefully he can add a, a managing in the World Series uh, to that interesting stat. So, um, yeah, look, looking for a lot of positive things from the Rays for for a hopeful 2020 and and 2021. Um, kind of as we as we wrap up here, I, I think uh, I think one of the coolest things that you get to participate in, which is probably one of the most stressful <laughs> and tiring uh, days of your life, but uh, to the average fan who uh, who attaches their their hand to uh, Twitter and through their phone on trade deadline day. Walk us through Ooh. what trade deadline day looks like in your world. Wow. Um, <laughs> first off, you you go into that every year having averaged about two and a half hours of sleep per day in the in the ten days leading up to it. And the only uh, consolation is that you know the baseball executives that you're communicating with either in you know, 40-second microburst phone calls or in text messages uh, or in some cases emails, uh, it's it's crazy. And it it always feels like as much as you feel like you have a good idea, (laughs) you might have a good idea of what's possible, stuff evolves like out of nowhere. Like I remember the 2004 uh, trade deadline, when the Red Sox shocked everybody by trading no more Garcia Parra. Uh, and then you talk afterward, Theo Epstein and other members of that front office uh, about how that all came together. I mean, they literally are piecing together these whopper deals in less than an hour. Uh, and so, you know, as you sit there on set, you know, once we go on air at one o'clock, two o'clock, and your phone is just dinging and dinging and dinging the messages are coming in. And a lot of them are from friends and family who might have fantasy teams. <laughs> They're like, Hey, uh, who, who are the Yankees going to get? And you just pass, right. Exactly. And you're kind of waiting through those uh, and then waiting for the general managers to come up. And then you're like, wow. Or the agents to come up and you, it is a crazy day. Uh, as you say, having grown up on a farm, I always like watching rodeo. And you always feel like you're riding on this massive Brahmin bull <laughs> and you're just along for the ride and you're hoping you're not bucked off by the time you get through it. It, it is so fascinating. Baseball, 
uh, obviously the outside world kind of uses as this as this slow game and methodical, um, and and it is to a degree, but but we enjoy that that in uh, the in the course of a day. That was one of my things I loved so much when I was a groundskeeper was the the course of the day was just nice and slow and steady unless it rained, uh, but slow and steady. <laughs> and then for whatever reason, and, and the season is so long, right? And homestands are so long, and road trips are so long. And then for whatever reason, the trade deadline is like this just rush of 10 to 12 hours of just chaotic movement. Um, it's so fun to, to, to watch from a, a fan's perspective. Um, I, 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 as a groundskeeper, I used to always like on trade deadline day watching how many cell phones were on coaching staff's hips. <laughs> and, and, and the, you know the trainer would always check his phone a little bit more than he was taping ankles and, and, and watching people throw but uh, just a, a weird excitement that uh, has some positives and negatives to it obviously people are their personal lives can be can be shook up uh, in the in the in one phone call but um, but Buster thank you thank you so much for for joining us uh, I think our fans will will thoroughly enjoy this as they continue to uh, to stay at home and be safe at home and in in our, our are thirsty for as much baseball content as possible. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I know obviously you're an extremely busy guy, uh, especially with everything going on. But uh, thanks again. Thanks so much for for enlightening us on your background and, and kind of your opinions and thoughts on, on the state of, of baseball right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. The only thing that I regret is is that I didn't break you down and like force you to tell me what you thought about Bull Durham because you know <laughs> that minor league life now better than I do. I'm just working from two years experience versus your experience. <laughs> it, it It's interesting. Uh, we actually, I don't know if you know this, Buster, we actually uh, maintain and operate the DAP. Um, and so it, it's so cool. We actually leave our, our groundskeeper. <laughs> he leaves the right field corner gate open and he says daily during the summer, there are families and just baseball people that come over and they've got their camera and they're like, we, we didn't know this place still existed, uh, let alone is still <laughs> operating. And so it's it's a great, great part of our past and in our in our present and then obviously hopefully also our future too. So again, Buster, thank you, thank you so much. Um, I wish you wish you luck through the uh, the rest of this crisis and hopefully we can all uh, be covering and watching baseball uh, here shortly. Absolutely, thanks for having me, Scott. Thanks. All right, so that was our time with with Buster Olney. Uh, how cool was that, right? How cool was that? Um, really great insight uh, into the big league world and a guy who's come through minor league baseball as well. Uh, I think that, I think that's you know a part that a lot of fans might not realize is is so many positions and jobs in in minor league baseball are, are just like the players. They're uh, they're honing their craft. They're learning. Uh, they're learning on the field. They're learning off the field, and they're they're looking to. Uh, some of them, at least, are, are looking to move up um, in the ranks and and eventually get to the big leagues, just like a player. And uh, the players, the groundskeepers, the operations folks, the ticket sales folks, the sponsorship guys, uh, the hitting coach, the pitching coach. They're all they're all people. At the end of the day, they're all people, and uh, just like everybody else. And it, it's neat to. Kind of get a look into that at the big league level from his perspective on uh, on past events and current events, and uh, and then what the future of a professional baseball um, will look like when we hopefully get out of this crisis sooner rather than later. So, again, thanks to big thanks to Buster for joining us. Uh, hope everyone enjoyed uh, his time. So, Bulls fans, uh, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, and hopefully we've all got baseball to to watch and listen to on the radio soon. So. Take care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon on Hit Bull Win Podcast.